BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. As we remember, one of the major players in the 2020 election was the Lincoln Project, a group of leading Republicans who banded together to prevent Donald Trump from getting reelected, and then they hoped to destroy Trumpism and restore the Republican Party to what it used to be before Donald Trump. Well, the Lincoln Project achieved its first goal, but not the second. Trumpism still lives on, and the Republican Party, in fact, remains loyal to Donald Trump and is even talking about nominating him again in 2024. So what's the Lincoln Project up to now? We put that question today to the first top Democratic strategist to join the Lincoln Project, Joe Trippi, who made his first mark as campaign manager for Howard Dean back in 2004 and also led campaigns for former Governor Jerry Brown and former Senator Doug Jones, among many others. Joe Trippi, it's been too long. Good to talk to you again. Uh, way too long. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much. So, uh, Joe, I know the uh, Lincoln Project, a uh, big supporter of the Lincoln Project, uh, even went to a fundraiser for the Lincoln Project a uh, year or so ago or a couple of years ago now, I guess. Uh, I see them as a as a group of renegade Republicans trying to do the right thing. What's a big Democrat like you joining up with the Lincoln Project? One, I've been a supporter of theirs for a while, but we're still in the, stuck in this delusion that there's two parties, uh, two functioning parties. There isn't. This isn't and should not be seen as Republicans versus Democrats or or left versus right. It really is an authoritarian movement, and we all have to be part of a pro-democracy coalition to defeat it. And I thought the best way I could help do that and signal that to everybody, to Democrats, independents, Republicans, a lot, you know, former Republicans, never Trumpers or or just Republicans who are uncomfortable with the authoritarian path that their party's on to join together in a pro-democracy coalition. And that's what I want to help build at the Lincoln Project uh, and, and build that coalition beyond the Lincoln Project. Other groups bring them in. So if their original goal was to defeat Donald Trump and prevent his getting reelected, what's the goal now? The authoritarians are in charge of the party. I mean, it's Trump and it's, you know, look at the 139 that voted to, to not certify in the House. They are holding the rest of the party, any people of goodwill in the party are being held in office or being held hostage or purged. You have to get rid of the whole thing to get rid of the authoritarian movement within it. And that means defeating them, stopping them from getting a majority in 2022 in either the House or the Senate and making sure that they don't seize the presidency in 2024. After that, if we succeed in getting rid of the authoritarian movement, look, I'd much rather be retired right now, but I kind of like Al Pacino. Every time I think <laughs> I've gotten out, uh, something pulls me back in and I can't walk away with this this movement that's that's threatening our democracy. And and I think most Americans are just unaware of how perilous uh, and how close we are to losing it. 
Yeah. No. Tell me about that. I uh, think it's time to retire, and you never can quite get there because yeah. there's, there's too much too much on your plate. But I, I know you say there are not two functioning parties, and yet in reality, the targets, people that you're targeting, uh, are all Republicans, correct? In terms of making sure they don't stay in office. Look, I look at uh, Joe Biden and Joe Manchin, and I think a large part of the press corps is still, and a large part of America is under the delusion that we, we're still looking, there has to be a two-party solution to this movement. Well, there isn't. Manchin is, is literally thinks you can negotiate with hostages because you're either, depending on which senator or member of Congress you're talking to on the Republican side, you're either talking to a card-carrying member of the authoritarian wing of that party in which there's a lot mm, of them, yeah. or or you're talking to someone in the party that they're holding hostage or haven't purged yet. I mean, cer- certainly, yeah. they've, I don't see any way out of this. When you're fighting autocracy, it's a zero-sum game. If autocracy wins, democracy loses. There's no like, hey, can we find some middle ground here? And it's becoming very clear, uh, hopefully more clear to more Americans with their moves to suppress votes, with their increasingly, not just January 6th, but increasingly sort of that wing, I think as it feels threatened, I think there'll be more violent elements of it, unfortunately. But I mean, I think we have to all stand up in a pro-democracy coalition, of which the Lincoln Project is a very important part. But there are other groups out there. It's all of us working together, getting out the vote, making sure that we call this authoritarian movement out. Like we've done with uh, Toyota recently, you know, a lot of these corporations, they're still stuck in the two party world where you give to both sides mm-hmm. and you cover your butt and you have your lobbyists talk to both sides and you work out an agreement and you get your way. Bill, you and I have seen that for, for yeah. decades. Well, that's not cool anymore because now you said you weren't going to give to the insurrectionists. Toyota then starts to give them uh, you know, starts to make contributions again, as have several other of the corporations that made the pledge that they weren't going to give uh, to anybody who voted to not certify the election. And so somebody's got to stand up and say, no, you're either going to fund the authoritarian movement. You're not playing with, with two parties and playing both sides. You're funding an authoritarian movement. You're either doing that or you're not going to do it and you're going to stand with the pro-democracy coalition that's out to defeat it. And we started running ads, essentially said that six hours later, Toyota said, you know, we're not going to we're just not going to give to them anymore. AT&T is another one gave a hundred thousand dollars to Governor Abbott on the same day that he called the special election to go after voting rights. We've got to start making it clear that they're not just playing the old party politics. They're actually funding the attack on voting rights the attack on our democracy. They have to stop doing that. They said they would. We're going to hold them to it. And so I think that's part of it. And the press corps, too, keeps covering this as, you know, both sides, uh, Democrats and Republicans arguing about what happened on, oh, on yeah. something. And it's not. Dan Gilmore, I don't know if you remember him. He was a reporter for the San Jose uh, Mercury I do. News. Yeah, Dan was uh, is just great uh, blogger and tech guy. And he, I had him on on my podcast uh, a, a bit ago, and he said, "Look, you know, the one thing that's great about the press, anytime anybody cuts off a reporter, kicks them out of the out of the room, closes out the press, the entire press corps immediately goes into, this is incredibly wrong. This is absolute attack 
there is no, but on the one hand, the other party says this, and we say that. No, it's they go totally crazy to defend the right of freedom of the, of the press or any attack on the press. But right. when it's an attack on our democracy, it's just two parties <laughs> talking about it. It's not, it's no, it's like, wish that the, the majority of the press would see this threat for what it is and the corporate America the same way. So when President Biden says that our democracy itself is at stake today, that's not an exaggeration, you believe? No, I think it was really important that he state it that way, that he come out clearly and say, no, this is really autocracy versus democracy, which he did in his speech. And I, and I think that should be a signal to a lot of the the folks I'm talking about, press corps, uh, corporate America, to just citizens out there that are wondering, you know, what what's going on. No, that's what that's the fight we are in. Joe Biden's got a real problem because he's he's both got to govern, which means he's got to reach out and build consensus wherever he can. But you can't build consensus with an authoritarian movement. I mean, it's a zero sum game. If the autocracy wins, democracy loses. At the same time, if he sounds the alarm and leads that way, the Republicans are saying, look, he's he's calling us names. We're not going to work with them. So he he's kind of, I think, doing a really good job of trying to accomplish both things. But it makes it incumbent on the rest of us to say what he and a, a lot of people who are trying to govern right now can't say, to really define the Republican Party for what it is right, what's become an authoritarian movement and make it clear you don't want to be part of that. And in corporate America can't be part of that. The press needs to cover it that way. And I think that's starting to happen. I think the president's speech also helped help with that. Yeah. Do you believe the American people recognize what's going on? Do they sense that uh, so much is at stake? No. And, and I think that's this is how democracy dies. Autocratic movement Basically, when they succeed, it's because they exhausted everybody or people didn't sense the threat in time. That's how this happens. And so one of the reasons I joined the Lincoln Project was to say, like, no, wake up. There's something really big happening here. Look, they're, they're, people have real problems. You know, COVID, food on the table, get their kids uh, to school, making sure that they're safe, all, all these things. And so... The way the press covers this, all these things as two parties fighting, actually benefits Trump and the authoritarian movement in his party because they're counting on people saying, boy, it's just two parties fighting. I'm not voting. Or, mm -hmm. or gosh, I got better things to do with my time. It's not two parties fighting people. This is this is an authoritarian movement. It's the same with the press. Guys, if they win, you don't have to worry about ever standing up and fighting for press freedom again. That that those days will be over. It's same with corporate America. They don't understand if if corporate America understood the real threat, they know what happens when a country becomes an autocracy to business, to corporations, to innovation, all that stuff. It goes. It goes. So uh, my fear is that we've lived under this delusion for so long, including me. By, by the way, go, mm -hmm. gosh, don't go listen to my podcast six months ago because <laughs> all you'll hear is me talk about, geez, we got to get along. We got to come together. We got to find common ground. Gosh, I just come off the Doug Jones campaign in Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, where we, it's got to be the most message to find common ground and come together. No one for the last three years was 
was pounding the table more with that message than Doug Jones and my efforts to help him. When we went from winning in 2017 and in three years, just seeing how polarized the state had become and recognizing on January 6th the extent that this authoritarian movement that Trump has fueled, it got me to understand something that Stuart Stevens at the Lincoln Project had said to me, that we all this is happening because we lack the imagination of just how far these people will go. So, you know, Trump can't get elected in America. Well, right. We lack yeah. the imagination. January 6th could never happen in America. Well, guess what? It, we couldn't imagine that happening. I don't, I don't, I think the Capitol Police and those folks couldn't really, even though they had some you know, some information saying this might be, ha- I think they just couldn't imagine the extent to which it was going to go, how badly it was going to go. And I think now, even after all of us have lived through that, there's still an autocracy taking over the United States, a movement like that succeeding never can't happen in America. Well, no, it can and by the way, we came within 44,000 votes in, right. in three states of finding out how much we couldn't imagine if you wanted to imagine what the second term of Trump would be. And now, if they get the House back in 2022, geez, does it take much imagination to think about what would happen at the certification of the election in 2024? Yeah, no, done yeah, deal, basically. Right, right, exactly. And it's over. So this is why I, I joined the Lincoln Project. At this point, yeah, no, I'm not retiring. I'm going to give it everything I got for the next two cycles to try to do everything I can to stop this authoritarian movement from succeeding. And I think that's the same place that the rest, I mean, I know that's the, where the rest of the Lincoln Project group is. They The same thing, let's, let's kill this and then let's, you know, go lay on a beach in, in 2025 <laughs> or something. But it's not about... It's not about let's like uh, do this and then start another party or something. First, stop this threat and then turn it over to other folks. <laughs> so uh, you, <laughs> in the world of politics, you and I uh, always get down kind of to the, the grunt level, right? I mean, does this yeah. mean on the ground that you are going to have an active effort, uh, run ads, have a campaign against every one of those 139 people in the House? And I think it was eight senators who voted not to certify. No, I think it'll be smarter than that. I mean, the part of the problem I think in 2020 was the number, the amount of money and energy wasted in places where y- you couldn't possibly have defeated somebody in a super safe, you know, 80% seat. There's a lot of the 139 that are in districts that you, I mean, they re, they drew them for themselves, of course, right? But there are 14 to 20 of them, maybe maybe a little bit more that are in districts that are not authoritarian movement country, where even by traditional red-blue, the seat's not in, entirely gone, unavailable. It'll be targeting those that we think we can get. And look, the, the House is really important because Democrats only have the House by five, six seats right now. We know with redistricting, it becomes an uphill fight when they they gain another three to seven seats by just redrawing the lines before there's even a vote counted, which puts us right on that bubble. So going after the 13, 14, 22 of the 139 and really focusing on get out the vote on, uh, I mean, it's getting the base, uh, Democratic base out, but also pushing hard, defining the authoritarian movement so that those Republican women, suburban women, uh, the younger Republicans, the 
college-educated Republicans that are having real severe problems with that part of the party. And it causes them to look for the first time at voting outside the Republican Party for a Democrat. That's going to be an important component, too. It's, it's going to have to be a, a real pro-democracy coalition, not just the Lincoln Project, but you know, there's other folks out there and other groups, but having a coalition of those groups that each operating in those same districts, somebody who's doing get out the vote, that might not be the Lincoln Project's role, right? Ours would be yeah. trying to hold some of the Republicans to not vote with the authoritarians, but vote with the democracy coalition. So it's going to be putting that together. The same in the Senate. I mean, the Senate, I think, again, the same thing you got is probably going to end up being four or so Democratic senators who are vulnerable. And then there's probably four to eight uh, mm-hmm. potential seats now held by Republicans that can, uh, you know, Ohio being a good example of one of those, depending on who the Rep- Republicans end up nominating, but they're all trying to out authoritarian Trump each other, including J.D. Vance out there. <laughs> and a guy right. like Tim Ryan hopefully can pick, win, win that seat. And there are other candidates out there, but I mean, it, it just depends on how it all plays out and how redistricting plays out too. Because right now, even though I s- sort of talk through the 13 to 20 Republicans who are in the the 139 who voted against certification, there may be more or less once the the lines come out in two or three months. Uh, you know, so we're planning on it, but we we I can't say yeah, Bill, it's going to be these 13 right. districts or these 26 districts. In a very perverse way, I was just thinking, listening to you outline some of the goals here. If you want to run against authoritarianism and the personification of author- authoritarianism, to have Donald Trump as the candidate in 2024 might be the best thing, right? Is that too crazy? I mean, no. I, I Look, I think if they win the House in 2022, that's exactly what's going to happen. Right. Uh, he's going to run. Because look, the whole thing is, again, it's authoritarian movement. What did he try to do on January 6th? It's like, cut, cut through all the crap. What did he try to do? Yeah. And what did they do even after the the insurrection and running for their lives? What did they do? 139 of them, a majority of the Republicans in the House voted not to certify. So we go to 2022, they win the House. Those 139 are still there. Maybe they have 220 members in the majority. So 220, 139, that means they had 81. Let's, they're all John McCain's, all, all 81 of them. That caucus, the insurrectionist caucus chooses the speaker, chooses the chairs, chooses mm-hmm. all that stuff. We can talk about impeachment, Benghazi hearings and investigations into Ukraine and everything else that'll start off with, with Speaker Jim Jordan or whoever it's going to be. But let's get to 2024. 2024, that House, that that authoritarian majority House caucus, now decides who to certify or not certify the Electoral College votes for president of the United States. We saw what they did on January 6th. This is my point. They win the majority. Trump's, I'm sure, think, great. I get to run and it doesn't really matter what I can just sit there and say it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. Yeah, right. And but they'll put them in and they'll put me in. And uh, and if they don't win, if there's a, a Democratic majority in the House in 2022, let's say we 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 actually, you know, hold it and pick up four or five, six seats. That's how you kill this thing. 
the way to defeat this is to defeat it. I mean, it's to really, yeah. you know, kill at it. the kill ballot, it. kill it at the ballot box hard. So I, I think that's important. I think our base, the Democratic base gets that. We got to get more citizens to understand that's the, that's the way to, that that's what we're yeah. up against. And that's why they need to vote. But I do think it's going to be a, the consequential thing about 2022 may well be if the Republicans get that somehow we don't defeat them and they get the majority in the House. I think we're looking at Donald Trump running in 2024 for sure, because he will know in his head, we all know how, how that works with him. His narcissistic side of him will be, yes, they will, of course, see how rigged it was and make me president for sure, because I have a majority of votes now. And I think, God, we were lucky that that wasn't the case mm-hmm. uh, on January 6th that day, because uh, they they would have done it and they will do it in 2024 if they're the majority. Joe, we, you and I have been around politics a long time. I want to ask you about a couple of people that you and I have uh, both uh, admired and or worked for, but we'll take a quick break here on the on the Bill Press Pod and then uh, come right back. Okay, just hang in there. And for today's podcast, what could be better than a plug for the Lincoln Project itself? Seriously, it's a great group dedicated to a great new mission which is nothing less important than protecting our democracy from authoritarianism, as Joe Trippi argues. So check out their website, lincolnproject.us, lincolnproject.us. Find out how you can help no matter what state or congressional district that you live in, lincolnproject.us. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on today's podcast with uh, Joe Trippi, a legendary Democratic strategist, a new member of the Lincoln Project, and a host himself of his own podcast called That Trippi Show Podcast, up on all the same platforms where you find Uh, the Bill Press Pod. So, Joe, I think you and I first met when you were running Howard Dean's campaign. How do you assess the uh, impact Howard Dean had on American politics? 
Oh, look, I think that campaign changed everything in terms of tactics and how the internet and technology, digital, the whole digital age of politics was is essentially pioneered or born in that campaign, I think. Uh, McCain had done a little before that. Uh, mm-hmm. It was certainly the campaign that had caught my attention with what little they they did. But no, the, there's no question about that, that the, the Dean campaign, uh, I, I think without the Dean campaign, I don't think Obama defeats Clinton in 2008. I think a lot of the the same pioneering tools and ability to, you know, the, the party establishment was all funding Hillary at that point. And just like the Dean campaign, the Obama campaign early days had to rely on the small dollar donations mm-hmm. and support out there. Most of those people had been this, of the 650,000 uh, who had given to Dean. In other words, the, the, that, that ground had been seeded by the Dean campaign. The way to do it had been seeded by him. And without that, uh, one, look, once the Obama campaign got going, a lot of the Democratic establishment money switched sides, you know, right. particularly after the Iowa win. But I think to get to that Iowa win, there's no way that that happens without the Dean campaign. And then all the stuff that follows after that. Part of it is just how quickly things like mobile phones and other things have gotten into the hands of people. I said back in 2004 that the Internet and and the technology we're using was taking power away from the top and putting it uh, in the hands of people at the bottom. And I think that's clearly happened. Unfortunately, the one thing I will say Bill, is in 2016, I woke up one day and saw Trump on Twitter, and I thought to myself, he's the first one since the Dean campaign to use technology the same way. And Uh that was to connect directly. Howard would connect directly on the Dean for America blog with our supporters. He would post something in the morning. They would comment. He'd call one of them out and say, that's great, or uh, reply to them. And I would come in. And, you know, one day I woke up and I just hit me. Damn it. Donald Trump has his, his personal Dean for America blog is Twitter. He is he is cha- yeah. he is des- you know connecting in a direct way. The Obama campaign never did that aspect of what we did in the Dean campaign. They won and they did a great job and they raised a lot of money and they did activate people on the ground to do things, but they didn't do that direct Obama to his supporter thing like Dean did. No, what everybody learned from Obama, and I think they did a great job, was hey, you don't need to do that direct connection that way. You can. You know, people are willing to organize and do things and we can give them tools. And so the party is in a lot of ways developed tools that, that, that people could organize with and use the digital tool set to do that. I think the thing that scared me the most, though, about Trump early on was that that ability to build that connection and use the digital tools that we had, some of which we had developed in the Dean campaign better than anybody I'd ever seen mm-hmm. since Howard Dean. Right. Um, and so I don't know where we see that going now, well, but th- th- that and, that should bother people. Yeah, right. And, and if if uh, Obama benefited from Howard Dean's example and the thing the things that you developed uh, with him, so did Bernie Sanders, big time. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. Someone like Bernie, the the, the establishment and the party is not going to help support or or give money to get off the ground and get his message out there. Couldn't exist in the way he clearly was able to connect. Why? Because he was able to build his own network using the digital and social media that only gotten a lot stronger since 2004. Remember, we didn't have 
smartphones and uh, yeah. YouTube didn't exist and things like that. It's what made Trump able to roll the entire Republican establishment. In early days, they were all for Bush or Rubio or whoever, you know, Cruz and the entire establishment thought, no way, um, we're not going to support Trump. Many of them went on to be never Trumpers. But the problem is power is gone. There's not a bunch of people who get in the smoke-filled room and say, okay, we're all going to give to this, this candidate <laughs> right. and they're going to win. And so now I think that sort of collapse of the party's ability to control things and that power now being in people's hands to contribute to the person they want to contribute to and not get in line and all that has created this ability for a Donald Trump to run roughshod over a party, take it over, lead an authoritarian movement within it to and, and start purging. And it particularly, you know this at the like the county committee level and stuff, they're, oh, they're literally yeah. purging everybody and putting in QAnon right. and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of uh, white supremacists and, and, and others. So <laughs> that's what they're doing. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, on one hand, I go like, wow, you know, we did this great thing. We invented this way for people uh, to take that power and do something good with it. And then I turn around and watch that a lot of the stuff that uh, we were doing being used by Trump better and more effectively than uh, than Democrats have been able to do, mm -hmm. you know, post Obama, and that's that's again another reason I joined the Lincoln Project was if I could take that knowledge of what I know about technology and work with the others in the Lincoln Project to build a lot of the things that the Demo that we haven't done for the last two decades that we should have been, where the Republicans sort of went to school on us and then up the ante. We need to do that too. And I, I think I, the Lincoln Project's a good place for me to to help sort of update some of the the tactics. And that's what we did do with Toyota. Mm -hmm. uh, it yeah. was not just TV ads. It was it was a, a digital uh, campaign to to turn them around, and it worked. So uh, you may not remember, uh, but my first uh, real job in politics was. Uh, as part of Jerry Brown's administration, yeah. <laughs> the first time he was governor, you came along to help him get reelected governor. Jerry's voice is still out there. Uh, assess his impact on the, on the American scene. He's definitely like the smartest person I've ever worked for. I mean, he's just brilliant, always ahead of his time, which is also part of his problem. I mean, in terms of right. the, the, <laughs> the, the politics of having an idea and 10 years later, everybody goes, gosh, he was right. We should have listened to him. <laughs> And I still think, look, I think on climate change, on nuclear proliferation, on a whole bunch of really pressing and important issues, he he still is out ahead of the crowd, I knows exactly what we need to do. And I think more and more are listening to him. If anything, gosh, I mean, if Jerry Brown were still an active, I mean, political life, a senator or, a, you know, a, mm -hmm. a something, I think it would be an amazing thing to have that maturity and, and insight in our government. It's not going to happen. He's, I think, happy uh, on his uh, ranch with Ann. But I, I, I just think the world of him and... Uh, and every time I, I pick up the phone or he calls, I'm just ready for to get a deeper understanding of where we're at. 
end of the issues. Yeah. And he, like I said, he's just a, a thought leader that I wish were still in the uh, public environment more. Uh, smartest person I ever knew either uh, or do know and uh, and have worked with, and particularly on the issues of climate change and yeah. nuclear proliferation. He's a he's a world leader. Uh, he, he yeah he he, he, really, he really is yeah. And I you mentioned I think he's heard ahead. on the world stage. That's what I meant by that. I yeah. think he's listened to more on the world stage than he is in the country. Because he doesn't have that off, you know, I mean, like I said, like a senator uh, would, he would, I think, have more impact on getting more Americans in tune on those two issues as well. But I think he is having enormous impact on the world stage in terms of people listening and getting what he's talking about. And finally, you mentioned Doug Jones and uh, that incredible election of 20 in 2017. And then what happened four or three years later? Is there any hope for, we remember when the South was democratic, not necessarily that we approved of the democratic politics of the time, but is the South gone for the Democratic Party? Joe, what did you come away from that experience with? No, no, it's not at all. I think the South is about the Democrats investing in the South. I think Stacey Abrams and a whole lot of people proved that in Georgia. I think if you look at you know, look at where we started to invest first, Virginia. I'm talking 15, 20 years ago. You know, it's the places where we just say we're, we're you know, even South Carolina, because at least we have South Carolina as one of the four presidential early states. So the Kamala Harris people, the Biden people, every four years, there's five or six campaigns fighting for their lives, building an organization in South Carolina. That makes South Carolina a little bit more competitive then a whole bunch of other places in the South. Why? Because there's actually a Democratic Party. We have a big presidential primary and there's all that activity in action. Places like Mississippi, Alabama, forget about it, right? No one's played there. I think in Mississippi, I think no one's run this one percent in 32 years. And I think uh, hmm. Doug was the first Democrat in 25 years to win a Senate seat in Alabama. Part of that, what I learned was it, all the numbers are pretty messed up. I mean, there's a reason that Alabama's plus 68% Republican in terms of how it votes on election days there. If you don't run anybody, yeah, you don't, right. <laughs> you know, you don't, you know. Uh, so when Doug first got in that race and it was, and he was a real guy, you know, real, you know, not some sacrificial lamb or, you know, somebody they just put on the ballot. Uh, no, he was really running for the Senate and he was a real, you know, somebody who could, who could with real policy chops and a, and a background and taking on the Klan. All of a sudden, you know, it wasn't, you did the polling, it wasn't 68 something. It was, it was like, you know, 12 points. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we run a competitive race, yeah. uh, then, then we, and we compete, you win. If you don't compete for 32 years, guess what happens? Mississippi is ruby red. And by the way, the other thing that happens is they have no idea what a Democrat is. The only thing they know what a Democrat is, is whatever the caricature of evil Democrats, Satanists, you know, that they've been getting in their media diet. So what I learned is that if you really look at North Carolina, if you look at Georgia, if you look at Alabama and, and Mississippi, and you look at the entire South, the real difference tends to be where did we stumble into investing in the state? It seems to be you need something like a Doug Jones to win. 
that gets everybody at the national level going, oh, maybe, geez, maybe something can happen there. Then we start investing and then we start building and then Georgia finally happens, right? Virginia happens. And I think North Carolina is going to- North Carolina, uh, right. Right. Uh, it goes back to the Howard Dean when he was chairman of the party, you know, 50 state strategy. Yep. Even when I was talking to you earlier about well, what's the Lincoln Project? Oh, we're going to go into these 13 districts. Well, look, that's the Lincoln Project. But the party, the Democratic Party, should as a party be investing and fighting everywhere for every vote in all 50 yep. states, uh, particularly with the way the damn Electoral College and the way the Senate works. Unless we can compete and win seats, Senate seats in in, in an Alabama or a Mississippi or Texas, we're going to end up always being in this 50-50 position because California, with all its millions of people, gets two, two Senate votes. And Idaho, with not that many people at all, gets two Senate votes. And if you start putting all the Idahos together, you're sitting there in, in a 50-50 situation if we're lucky. And what I learned from Doug Jones, he was someone who was real, who authentic, was not afraid of getting into something where everybody else was saying you have no chance. He understood and still does, and is still dedicated to to building a stronger party in the South. And I think that's one of the things he's he wants to do moving forward is to help replicate what's what Stacey Abrams and others have done in, in in not just Alabama, but in in a lot of the states in the South that have been neglected by the party for too long. Good. Well, that's a good message. Uh, you got to work, got to invest, and got to run candidates, right, in every district uh, in the South. Joe Trippi, it's so good to catch up with you, my friend. Thanks so much for uh, spending your time with us today and for all that you are doing. Um, I just have to say the stakes, I believe, are just as high as you have uh, argued democracy itself is on the line, which is why I'm glad you're still on the front lines working in the Lincoln Project and other places uh, uh, to save our democracy. Uh, and Joe, we will find you and listen to you on the That Trippy Show podcast as well. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. Have me back. All right, for sure. And that's it for today's podcast with uh, Joe Trippy. Remember, host of That Trippy Show podcast. Check out Joe's podcast. And thank you for joining our podcast today. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you uh, end of the week with this week's roundtable, taking a look back at all the big news of the week from Washington, D.C., with three of Washington's top political reporters. That's it for now. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>